0: everyone and welcome to the August 7th edition of the Work Comp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Folson, attorney with Floyd, Scarin, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. Jim Guerrero applied for workers' comp benefits after he was injured in the course of his employment as a construction laborer. He received temporary disability benefits and his entitlement to permanent disability was ultimately settled in December 2014 by compromise and release. Guerrero also applied for benefits from the Subsequent Injuries Benefits Trust Fund, asserting that a prior medical condition when combined with the work injury left him sufficiently disabled to meet the eligibility requirements. The Benefits Trust Fund contested his entitlement to these benefits, But a work comp judge ordered the fund to pay benefits, finding that Guerrero's pre-existing condition combined with the subsequent injury left him totally and permanently disabled. And the judge fixed the beginning date for the benefits as June 16, 2006, the day after temporary disability benefits ended. The Benefits Trust Fund contended, however, that its obligation should not begin until January 26, 2011, the date when Guerrero's injuries were deemed permanent and stationary. So, the benefit Trust Fund petitioned for reconsideration of the award, but the appeals board denied the petition. And the Court of Appeal found that the start date for the subsequent injuries benefit trust fund benefits in this case was correctly determined and affirmed the award in the published case of Baker versus WCAB and Jim Guerrero. The benefit trust fund pays a portion of the permanent disability compensation owed to a qualifying worker. A qualifying worker is one who is already suffering from a permanent partial disability and then incurs a further work-related injury that, combined with the existing disability, leaves the worker with a permanent disability rating of at least 70%. A worker who meets these criteria is eligible to receive benefits from the fund. In such a case, the employer pays only that portion of the permanent disability compensation, determined to be directly attributable to the last on-the-job injury and the subsequent injury fund pays the remainder. The compensation paid by the subsequent injuries fund is separate from and in addition to the compensation paid by the employer. The Benefit Trust Fund asserts in this case that the plain language of Labor Code Section 4650 indicates that it applies only to benefits payable by employers and that the Benefits Trust Fund is not an employer. According to the Benefit Trust Fund, it is Section 4751 of the Labor Code that controls when the Benefits Trust Fund benefits must commence and this is when the applicant's injury was declared permanent and stationary. But the Court of Appeal rejected this argument by giving the plain language of Section 4751 a common-sense meaning. It read the legislature's mandate to mean that the Benefits Trust Fund is required to commence payments at the same time as an employer's obligation to make payments of permanent disability benefits begins. In a federal lawsuit initially brought in 2015 by 13 plaintiffs, lead plaintiff Etopia Evans, widow of the late Minnesota Vikings and Baltimore Ravens player Charles Chuck Evans, filed a federal class action against 32 NFL teams. The case was transferred from Maryland to Northern California in March of 2016. The players claimed that NFL teams conspired to have trainers and team doctors dole out unprescribed pills and injections to get players back into games without warning them of the long-term side effects. A U.S. district judge dismissed most of these claims, including conspiracy claims against all 32 NFL teams, leaving only a few counts against the Green Bay Packers, Denver Broncos, and Los Angeles Chargers. The two remaining plaintiffs, Alfonso Kerr and Reggie Walker argued their claims fell within a narrow intentional harm exception to the workers' comp-exclusive remedy laws in California, Colorado, and Wisconsin. In a final blow to the case, the federal judge rejected their arguments and struck down what remained of their case. A summary judgment ruling held that retired football players could only seek relief through workers' compensation because their claims against three NFL teams did not fall within the narrow exceptions to the exclusive remedy rule, and that the plaintiffs failed to present facts showing the NFL teams intended to harm players in an egregious manner. With respect to the California team, the court found that the fraudulent Concealment exception in the law is an extremely limited one. Walker must prove that the Chargers knew of his work-related injury and that the Chargers concealed that knowledge from him and that the injury was aggravated as a result of such concealment. The exception does not apply if Walker was aware of the injury at all times. In short, it is not enough to insist that the Chargers engage in some type of fraudulent concealment. Similar findings were made with respect to the Colorado and Wisconsin exclusive remedy laws that governs the Denver, Bron- Denver Broncos and the Green Bay Packers. Selgene Corporation, a manufacturer of pharmaceuticals, has agreed to pay $280 million to settle fraud allegations related to the promotion of two cancer treatment drugs for uses not approved by the FDA. Celgene agreed to pay the settlement to resolve a Los Angeles whistleblower lawsuit that alleged it had been submitting false claims to Medicare. The lawsuit also alleged that Celgene violated the laws of 28 states and the District of Columbia, including California's Medical Cal program. The lawsuit also said the company ran afoul of anti-kickback statutes by coordinating with charities. They claim that the company donated hundreds of millions of dollars to charities like the Patient Access Network, the Foundation, and the Chronic Disease Fund as part of a core business scheme. These charities assist patients to access expensive blood cancer medications manufactured by Celgene by helping them afford their drug co-pays. Companies are not supposed to know exactly how their donated money is being spent and they are barred from giving money directly to patients covered by Medicare prescription drug plans. A Celgene spokesperson said that the Celgene complies with federal guidance documents with respect to its donations to patient assistance programs, and Celgene is not the first to be scrutinized over similar practices. Valiant Pharmaceuticals is also being investigated for its drug pricing and patient assistant programs, and Biotech's Gilead and Biogen have received similar federal subpoenas regarding patient assistance charities. Pursuant to the settlement, Celgene will pay nearly $260 million to the United States and over $20 million to the 28 states and District of Columbia. California will receive $4.7 million dollars more than any other state. Citing a market capitalization of $67 billion and stock appreciation of 107%, Celgene was Forbes magazine number two ranked drug company in 2013. Based on these numbers, one could argue that this settlement is a minor cost of doing business. And now our crime report. The operators of seven sham Southern California pop-up medical clinics were among 12 defendants taken into custody this week on federal drug trafficking charges. Authorities allege they diverted at least two million prescription pills, including oxycodone and other addictive and dangerous narcotics, to the black market. Two indictments allege that illicit prescriptions that were issued through a series of clinics that periodically opened and closed in a nomadic style. Those arrested include Menas Metsoyan, an Encino man who's also known as Maserati Mike. He is charged with leading the scheme. He owns six of the Seven Champ clinics, which were at times located in the Westlake District, North Hollywood, and the City of Orange. The indictments and search warrants describe how Metsoyan would rent out recruited doctors to these sham clinics. In one example, Metosian provided a corrupt doctor to a clinic owner in exchange for $120,000. The conspirators also allegedly stole the identities of doctors who refused to participate in the scheme. The indictment also charges Glendale-based criminal defense attorney Fred Menassian with obstruction of justice for allegedly creating fraudulent medical records in an effort to deter the investigation. After a load of Vicodin was seized from one of the conspiracy's major customers, Matosian allegedly oversaw the creation of fake medical paperwork in an effort to make it appear as though the drugs had been legitimately prescribed. The indictment describes intercepted conversations in which Attorney Manassian strategized on how to deceive law enforcement, which included a plan to bribe a doctor to lie to authorities. There are an abundance of reports in health care and disability fraud prosecutions in workers' compensation, personal injury, Medicare, and other programs but it is not widely known that prosecutors have now opened investigations on 111 suspected fraudulent veteran disability claims as well. The Veterans Benefits Administration provides a number of financial benefits programs for eligible veterans and certain family members, including monetary benefits for service-connected disabled veterans. According to a Department of Veterans Affairs Office of Inspector General report, VA investigators opened 111 health care fraud cases during the first six months of this fiscal year, and they were able to obtain more than $125 million in court-ordered fines and restitution. In one illustrative case, it was subrosa surveillance that provided the necessary evidence for a conviction. The Department of Justice released footage showing an Army veteran who told doctors he could no longer walk, but he was mowing his lawn and walking around his front yard. The footage was used in June to convict 54-year-old Mac Cole Jr. of federal health care fraud and making false statements about a health care benefit program. Cole was convicted after federal prosecutors convinced a jury that he exaggerated the extent and severity of a lower back injury for more than seven years. Cole is a retired Army Master Sergeant. He remains free on bond while awaiting sentencing in September. He faces up to a 50-year 50, 50 sentence in prison. Cole's case is part of a nationwide increase in VA fraud investigations. There is not to appear to be any benefit system that is immune to the onslaught of claims presented by fraudulent beneficiaries. And rosa investigation remains a potent tool in fleshing out exaggerated claims. A year ago, a Dana Point internist was placed on five years probation by the California Medical Board after failing to supervise a physician's assistant who improperly prescribed opiate painkillers to eight patients. Dr. Richard Burton Mantell was a 1981 graduate of the Autonomous University of Guadalajara Faculty of Medicine and was admitted to practice by the California Medical Board in 1983. State records reflect he was certified by the American Board of Internal Medicine. Mantell was accused in 2016 of gross negligence for his lack of oversight between 2011 and 2013 of the physician assistant. In one instance, the physician assistant prescribed Norco and Xanax to a patient even after he tested positive for methamphetamine at the appointment. Mantel reached a settlement with the Medical Board for that offense and was placed on five years probation. In June, the Medical Board filed a request to revoke this 2016 probation. One condition of his probation was that he attend an educational program equivalent to the Physician Assessment Clinical Education Program, known as PACE, at the University of San Diego School of Medicine the PACE program recommended that he undergo an intense neuropsychological examination. He therefore attempted to complete a fitness-for-duty neuropsychological examination, which showed Mantell experienced significant decline in the areas of perceptual reasoning, processing speed, and overall IQ. Mantell has now signed a license surrender agreement that became effective this July. The agreement gave mental illness affecting competency as the grounds for the action. And in regulatory news, the Justice Department unveiled a new unit formed to tackle the national opioid epidemic. And it announced that it is dispatching a dozen federal prosecutors to hard-hit states like West Virginia, Pennsylvania, Florida, and Ohio to combat the crisis. Attorney General Jeff Sessions announced the pilot program at the headquarters of the police department in Columbus, Ohio, which is located in a county where 173 people have died this year as a result of drug overdoses. Sessions said Ohio is at the center of this drug crisis that is gripping our entire nation. Sessions said the new unit will focus specifically on opioid-related health care fraud using data to identify and prosecute individuals that are contributing to this epidemic and others. The unit will work in tandem with the FBI, DEA, and local law enforcement. Sessions' announcement came two weeks after the Department of Justice announced it had charged more than 400 people with medical fraud, including dozens of doctors who had been prescribing $1 billion worth of unnecessary opioids. Last month, the Presidential Opioid Commission urged President Trump to declare a national emergency and... It made several recommendations for fighting the epidemic, such as expanding treatment facilities across the country, educating doctors about the proper way to prescribe pain medication, and equipping all police officers with the antidote overdose remedy Naloxone. According to a new CWCI study of the proposed workers' compensation prescription drug formulary regulations, more than 30% of the drugs currently dispensed to injured workers will be classified as exempt drugs and will no longer require authorization prior to dispensing. The DWC is putting the final touches on the regulations governing the new formulary mandated by the 2015 legislation, which is now scheduled to take effect on January 1. The intent of the formulary is to improve the quality of care by assuring that the drugs provided to injured workers meet evidence-based medicine standards and to reduce delays and frictional costs associated with disputes over requests for pharmaceuticals. The proposed regulations include a formulary drug list based on the American College of Occupational and Environmental Environmental Medicine's pharmaceutical formulary. To analyze the impact of the formulary, the CWCI researchers modeled 650,000 prescriptions against the terms of the proposed regulations. It found that 31% of the prescription drugs dispensed to California workers in 2016 are on the proposed exempt drug list and could be dispensed without pre-authorization. 22.5% of the drug requests that now go through UR and 21.4% of those that go through IMR involve drugs that are also on their proposed exempt drug list. The formulary exempts 15 special fill drugs and 14 perioperative drugs that can be dispensed four days prior to surgery and up to four days after surgery. Together, these drugs account for 2.6% of all workers' compensation prescriptions. The study author concluded that the proposed formulary will help assure that drugs provided to the injured workers meet evidence-based medicine standards while reducing disputes and that the proposed regulations represent a major step forward achieving the legislative intent of AB 1124. And the formulary opens the door for additional controls that could be used to address the high cost of workers' comp pharmaceuticals. The Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services have now published an updated workers' compensation Medicare set-aside reference guide. There are several important changes. This guide was written to help readers understand the process used by CMS for approving proposed workers' comp Medicare set-aside arrangement amounts. The new guide expands the criteria for submission of an MSA re-review, which is the closest thing CMS has to an appeal of a prior valuation. Submitters can now submit a re-review request where CMS has provided an approved amount, but settlement has not occurred and the medical care that supported the approved amount has changed substantially. The clarifications also address situations where certain states rely on utilization review processes to justify proposed set-aside amounts. (coughs) Excuse me. Re-review functions as the only appeal type process to the amount CMS requests to approve a submitted Medicare set-aside with a settlement. Previously, there were only two re-review options. One, where you show the CMS determination contained obvious mistakes. The second, when you have additional evidence not previously considered by cms which was available prior to the submission date of the original proposal now cms adds a third option referred to as the amended review an amended review can be requested when projected care has changed so much the new proposed amount would result in a 10% 10% or $10,000 change or more in CMS previously approved amounts. The case must have been originally submitted between one and four years from the current date, and it cannot have a previous request for an amended review. CMS is also noted as part of the re-review request, a claimant may change from brand-named medications to generic medications and drug types. However, this change cannot be the sole reason for the re-review request. So carriers and third-party administrators now have an opportunity to evaluate open cases to verify if any of them would fit the criteria for an amended review if medical circumstances have changed since CMS submission. The new criteria may provide a chance to settle the case where previously it was not possible. And in industry news, the largest U.S. retail pharmacies, including Walmart Stores and Walgreens Boots Alliance, are wielding more leverage when buying generic drugs, accelerating a decline in generic prices. The extent of the shift became clearer this week when wholesale drug distributor Cardinal Health Incorporated and Amerisource Bergen Corporation, as well as top global generic drug maker Diva Pharmaceutical Industries, warned of generic price declines of as much as 9% through the end of this year. Walgreens formed a drug-buying partnership with Amerisource Bergen in 2013 and earlier this year partnered with Pharmacy Benefits Manager Express Scripts. Retailer CVS Health Corporation has tied up with Cardinal Health, and more recently, Walmart has joined with McKesson Corporation to source generic drugs. Industry analysts said the alliances took some time to become effective, but their power over negotiations is now becoming clear. Experts say they are getting much better pricing, and really squeezing the manufacturers on margins. Express Scripts in an emailed statement said its partnership with Walgreens helps enhance its ability to further drive down the cost of generics. Tevis said it is awaiting the results of bids for a supply contract with Walmart and McKesson and that it now expects prices to fall by a rate in the high single digits through the remainder of the year. In May, Teva said its outlook for price erosion had worsened to 7% from 5%. Amerisource Bergen sees generic drug pricing erosion at the high end of the 7% to 9% range it had previously forecast. The FDA began to clear a backlog of applications in 2015 to bring additional competing generic drugs to market and lower prices. And with that story, that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, iPad, or Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. Again, I'm Renee Folst, an attorney with Floyd, Scarin, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today, and please drop by again next week for more news.